But when they hit the film, they dropped back down. The minute they started to fall, that fish moved right in, ate that bug and the other three hanging up in the film. And then I realized what I was doing wrong. What I'd been doing wrong is I was trying to imitate the pupa by stripping, retrieving through that zone. Uh Uh-uh. The fish or the insect that I'm imitating is not moving. And I was moving the fly, and they know the difference. That was Denny Rickards talking about the proper way to present the fly in Stillwater. This is episode number 64 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. A quick shout out to our new patron, Brian Moffitt. Thank you for joining the tribe here. Uh, You can go to wetflyswing.com slash Patreon to help uh, our little micro movement we got going here. Please take a moment uh, also to head over to, um, if you want to subscribe to the show, just go to wetflyswing.com slash subscribe and uh, you can quickly uh, join the team there as well. In today's episode, I chat with Denny Rickards, one of the best and biggest stillwater guides in our area and a guy who really brings it on today. We talk about the most common stillwater mistakes, when and where to find fish and his favorite line he uses most of the time. Denny talks about why not moving your fly is key, the best colors to find fish and to use on your flies, and how he starts his day every time in the lake. Don't miss this as Denny takes us back and talks us uh, talks to us about how he almost had a professional baseball career and how this path uh, changed abruptly. So, without further ado, here's Denny Rickards from FlyFishingStillwaters.com. How's it going, Denny? Just great, Dave. Looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah, me too. We, um, you know, I've been chatting with a few of my buddies and uh, talking to some people about, you know, about you and if, you know, having some questions and things like that. You're obviously a big name in the Stillwater game. I've I've actually only had, I think to this point, one guest that's been um, a Stillwater uh, guest, at least with that focus. Um, but um, but other than that, you're, I'm hoping to dig in and answer some questions here. But before we jump into all the Stillwater stuff, maybe you can just talk about how you first got into fly fishing and then how you brought it up to, you know, where you have a business in fly fishing. Well, it's one of those things, Dave, I think with everybody that likes to fish, uh, I got hooked on it when I was still five, six years old. My dad owned a sporting goods store, but he didn't know anything about fishing. So he didn't have a lot of fishing tackle around yet. Looking at other people fishing in in those days, you know, I'm going back 60 years or so and watching them just put a, a bobber out there with a worm underneath it and uh, watching that bobber bounce around. It did something to me. But as I grew older and a young adult, uh, I was doing schools and clinics and stuff when I lived up at Lake Tahoe and helping people writing a column in the local paper. But it was one afternoon, I walked across the street and I saw some fish coming up to some dry flies. And I hadn't done any fly fishing. I knew about it, but I hadn't done it. And watching what was going on, I went over and got a rod that was given to me with a an automatic reel. I didn't know what a leader was or what the 4X, 2X, any of that stuff was or tapered leaders. All the terminology that went with the sport, I was totally in the closet. But I went down and bought some dry flies from a local sporting goods store, walked across the street, never 
past the line in my life, but somehow I was able to work it and get it underneath this limb where these fish were hanging. And I caught four, believe it or not, and they were up to 20 inches on dry flies browns. And it was the upper Truckee River that comes into Lake Tahoe. So that got me hooked. That got me started. Cool. So, uh, yeah, so you grew up in the Lake Tahoe area, and you mentioned your dad's sporting goods store. What what was the name of that store, and what, what year was that? Um, did he also I have couldn't fly? tell yeah. you. It was when I was just a real oh, okay. youngster living in Hollywood. Uh, that was oh, wow. geez, 50, 60 years ago. Gotcha. Okay, but, yeah, you've pretty much been fishing or been into the outdoors most of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you've been doing this uh, a long time, and so where did the – you know, I don't know if there was a transition, but when did you become the uh, the Stillwater? When did all that take place when you kind of became this this expert on Stillwaters? Well, you know, it was one of those days, Dave, I was living at Tahoe, and I, I'm always fishing the lakes and streams around the area. But in back into the late 50s, early 60s, I was a, a lure fisherman, and uh, and believe it or not, I was deadly with a nightcrawler. God, I could go out and get those big fish for that stuff. And I went over to a lake one afternoon and had been trolling plugs and took a break, and I saw fish rolling out there. I knew they were coming up for bugs. Well, I for whatever the reason, I got back in the truck, got to fly right out and went out and tried making a few casts. That was my first experience on Stillwater, and I actually caught a few fish. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh-huh. I didn't know anything about the sport. But it was enough that uh, as I grew older and got uh, in those days, we got into graphite rods because before that it was bamboo and glass. So anyway, as I grew older, I just started uh, doing more and more on Stillwater and the lure of bigger fish, which we have in lakes compared to streams and rivers, and all the solitude that went with it and the beauty of the high country lakes. It just, this is something I wanted to learn, and uh, that just started me off in that direction. Gotcha. Gotcha, yeah. And so you just went all in, and now you've, now you're uh, kind of doing the show circuit, and you're kind of everything Stillwaters. Do you still do, um, I mean, do you ever do any, like, uh, stream fishing at all, or is it pretty much all Stillwaters all the time? Oh, no. No, hell, I uh, we live on a on a ranch. It's a thirty acre ranch. My wife raises Arabian horses, and we have Fort Creek here out of Fort Klamath. Runs. It's ten feet from the house where I'm talking to you right now, and it's huh. it's a gin clear stream. It doesn't change temperature all year. It's a Spring Creek. Average depth is probably two to three feet. And it's all native brown, rainbow, and brook, and uh, we own both sides, and it's a non-navigable creek, so no one can come down on a boat on it. So anyway, no, I still do that. What really got me flipped over onto the Stillwater side is when I bought a resort here in uh, Fort Klamath over at Rocky Point on Upper Klamath Lake. That's where I really learned the Stillwater side of things because I fished every day and was guiding almost every day for 11 years. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and what was the name of the resort? It was Rocky Point Resort okay. on Upper Klamath Lake. Wow. And, and being yeah. on the water every day, you can't help but learn. Is that um, resort still out there, still going? Oh, yeah. I still go over there. I keep my boat more there. I'm on the lake probably three to four days uh-huh. uh, throughout the entire season. I'm still getting 220-plus days a year on oh, wow. the water. Wow. And are you now, are you still Are you running that resort, or are you still connected with that? 
No, no. I sold it about 10 years ago, and it's gone through several owners. But I go over to Fish the Lake because anybody that knows about Upper Climate knows it's yeah. it's probably the best trophy lake in the West as far as rainbows up to 20 pounds out there. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've fished a little bit. I've fished uh, Upper Klamath and... Um, and some of the rivers that feed in there too. That's the cool thing about the Klamath right. Lake system is you get these uh, rainbow trout that are that are kind of like uh, it's like steelhead almost, right? They're they're using their lake as their ocean and um, kind of like a they, great lake, similar yeah, to a great lake sort of thing, right? They're a cross between the rainbow. It's uh, a native uh, rainbow in the lake is an upper Klamath like rainbow. And Bob Bemke, who used to write for Trout Unlimited magazine, I think it was Trout Unlimited magazine or the FFF. Uh, I'm not sure which it was, but anyway, he was up and, uh, told me that, you know, you have, when you look at all different species of rainbow, you've got cam loops and, uh, uh, the Eagle Lake rainbow. Well, there's an upper Klamath like rainbow. That's a, totally different distinctive different mm. uh mm-hmm. breed but there's two others that people don't even know about that one only goes into the lake occasionally during the year and the coloration is totally different it's more olive with some spots around the gill plate and down by the tail the rest of it's just an olive look and the other one is uh, totally different color than that but it doesn't go to the lake but it's in the tributaries that feed it so uh, it's interesting when you catch them and you compare them to see how different they are. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I want to dig into a lot of the, uh, you know, all the how to's and how to catch fish and tips because I know you're, mm-hmm. you've got a ton of, uh, resources there we could talk about. But before we jump into that, can you bring, bring us back a little bit on the historical piece? Because we talked a little bit about how you, you know, you buying a lodge and all that stuff. But can you take us back to, I don't know, maybe some point in the, the Stillwater history? I don't know if it brings us back to England or whatever, or maybe the U.S., but just how we've come to where it seems like, um, Stillwaters have been around a lot, uh, but they don't, you don't, you don't hear a ton about them. Has that changed over the years? Well, what's happened, Dave, if you go back to the 50s, late 50s and early 60s, that's when I started doing Stillwater. And I've been doing it now for over 60 years, fishing like with a fly. And when I started, all the rods, as I mentioned earlier, were made of bamboo or glass. We didn't have graphite rods. Uh, pontoon boats, they hadn't even been invented yet. They were 20 years away from that time frame. Uh, fluorocarbon leaders. They wouldn't arrive until the, I think it's the early or late 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Uh, a woolly bugger that everybody fishes today, if he's a fly fisherman, they probably have a woolly bugger yep. in their, in their uh, uh, assortment of flies. That hadn't been designed yet. It was still a woolly worm. No one had thought about putting a marabou tail on it. That didn't happen hmm. until almost in the 80s. Yeah. And a lot of the things, all the books, and uh, I've done four different books on Stillwater, and I went out and did as much research as I could to see what other people thought about it and couldn't find a thing. Hmm. There was nothing written. There weren't any articles in the fly fishing magazines. There were no books. And what was written was really uh, very, very elementary. They didn't get into the detail. And what people want to know, as I've learned in guiding for 50 years, people want to know how to catch fish. They need to know what you know. So as we move forward into the sport, uh, we didn't have indicators. No one was fishing indicators and chronomids. Nope. The word pupa hadn't even been designed for lakes yet. People speak of a pupa pattern. It's really 
associated with either midges or caddis. There is no such thing as a mayfly pupa. You won't find it in any fly shop. It's not in any book. Worse than that, look at any stream or river guy out there fishing. They don't fish patterns that are pupa patterns. They fish flies that are really larva patterns that the trout take for pupa. But we can get into that later. Yeah. Anyway, it's just a how-to thing in the sport. I think a lot of uh, early tradition came from England, but most of the guys back in the 40s and 50s that would fish a lake either did dry fly fishing, which is, speaks for itself, yep. or else they trolled a fly. Yeah. But that was even seldom done. It just wasn't done. There was no knowledge for anybody to pick up and learn a sport. That's right. That's right. And Today, that's what, yeah. right now, though, Dave, it's the fastest-growing segment of fly fishing. Just look at all the pontoon boats that are sold every year. Yeah. Look at how many people, when you go to a lake, that are out there. Most of them are struggling. They don't know a whole lot. Some of them can do okay and catch fish. But when I watch guys out there on the water, I see so many people making the same mistakes that I made 30, 40 years ago and don't know anything different because there's no one to tell them that they're doing it wrong. Hmm. Yeah, I know that uh, a bunch of things come to my mind, you know, as you're talking there about the changes that I mentioned earlier, I, you know, like it wasn't uh, as popular, but I kind of misspoke. I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, definitely lake fishing is, is huge and lots of people are interested. I, you know, I love it. I haven't done as much uh, recently, but um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, what do you think for you? What is the thing that really makes lakes, you know, enjoyable over, say, when you compare to go uh, stream fishing or is it kind of an equal thing for you? No, I, you know, I love to fish the stream as much as anybody, but I'm getting up there in years now, even though I'm still out there pounding it, and I've got a creek right here next to the house that's loaded with fish, but uh, most guys that get into fly fishing to begin with are taught dry fly fishing, and dry fly fishing on a stream or river is pretty elementary. It's mm. pretty simple. You just match the hatch, put a cast up there. You don't have to know how to cast. You don't throw very far. And if you get it in the lie where the fish is holding and coming up, you're going to catch fish. So if you're not doing that and you're sinking a nymph, uh, you don't need a lot of fly lines. You don't need a floater or a sink tip line to do that. And they throw short lines and control it. And now t- today, everybody's using bobbers and mm. a fly underneath it, which is a very effective way of doing it. But on lakes, there's uh, there's different ways, different forms of presentation, and we can get into those whenever yeah. you want as to how to go about it and what you need in order to be successful at it. But lakes, for me, it was the lure of the bigger trout. Okay. I just, uh, it just you know, uh, that's what I go after when that's I'm it. on the water. That's it. No, that makes sense. So, okay, yeah, let's, let's dig into a little bit. You mentioned, um, you know, dry flies. Um, you know, streamers and things like that. And there are, there are a bunch of different techniques. And I guess just because we can't cover everything in this, you know, this uh, conversation today, let's try to focus this. And I, you know, I had um, uh, Phil Raleigh on that I mentioned in the past episode, and we talked a little bit about some of the, some of the tech techniques he does. And I'm sure they're similar um, to stuff that, that you do, but do you want to focus a little bit be, uh, on, on some of the under the, under the surface sort of stuff as, as, as opposed to, um, you know, not necessarily the streamer stripping stuff. I mean, and I guess that is a question I have as far as trolling. Do you do as much trolling as you do fishing under an indicator? I do some of it, but where you got to go, Phil Rowley is really a chronomid fisherman. Yeah. He's an indicator guy. Yep. And I know Phil well. We've been in a lot of shows. I'll see him here in another month at another show that I'll be at. 
And he and Brian Chan and I, we've talked and, you know, I kid him a lot because to me, fishing under an indicator is boring. <laughs> it doesn't excite me. I don't have the patience for it. But as far as what they fish on the end of the underneath that indicator, whether it's a midge or whatever, I've been doing that for a long time, but I cast and retrieve it. So when you look at a lake, Dave, there's three ways to present a fly. Well, actually four. You can dry fly fish with a floating line on top. Or you can use the indicator with a floating line and put a, a chronomet or a small nymph underneath it. You can troll a fly. You can cast and retrieve a fly. Those are the four different ways of doing it. And the cast and retrieving has got so many other factors that affect your success rate that's difficult. If you're a troller, you don't even need a fly rod to go out and troll. You can fish with a fly and put it on the end of a spinning line and put a split shot a few feet up and go troll it. You'll catch all kinds of fish. That's yep. not difficult. And if you're a cronmet fisherman, someone came up with the term indicator. It's nothing different than using a float, and the trout doesn't know what's on top that's holding that thing up. Yep. So if you had a spinning rod, you could do it that way. You don't need a fly rod for either those two forms of presentation. But... We do use fly rods, and we do it because we switch back and forth from one mode to the other. What takes the most presence in understanding what you're doing is the cast and retrieve. And the difference between stream guys and guys who fish lakes, stream guys, for the most part, unless they're salmon and steelhead guys, they don't cast very far, and they're not very good casters. They might be fine for 20, 30 feet, but on a lake, distance is critical because of the conditions that we face out there. A lot of days you're going to have those flat days where the water isn't ripply, and you're going to have to crank that thing out there. And then you got to understand the trout's behavior relative to the conditions that exist. But cast and retrieve, it's more about depth on still water. And the depth is controlled by the fly line and it, making the longer cast. I can give you a, an example. What I'm talking about, if a guy went out and fished six hours and I asked people, I said, what would put a smile on your face? How many fish do you got to catch to make you happy? And it varies what the number would be. But if you only caught 10 and you put in six hours, most people would go home and feel they had a pretty good day. What if it was 20? In six hours, you're going to make somewhere between 190 to 200 casts. And if you went home with a 20 fish day, that means 180 casts failed. So our success rate on legs is not really very good. But we measure it in terms of size and numbers, and that's the way we look at it. But we don't look at where we fail or why we fail. We only look at what we catch. Enjoy the hell out of it and have a good time and enjoy the ambience of the, the, the trees and the wind right. and the beauty and all that. And that's great. But yep. uh, if guys are going to do lakes and they want to really make the most out of it, I can tell them exactly what they have to do if they want to get big fish versus just yeah. catching fish yeah let's let's talk about that because i think the you know the big fish thing you know not everybody obviously is into getting the biggest fish but i think you know a lot of us are you know it's fun to catch a big fish and and all that so let's dig into you know um a little bit just take us to you know you mentioned upper klamath but it can be really any lake probably um maybe mm -hmm. maybe just describe how you get into to big fish or some of those bigger fish on the lakes and where do you start just take us to you know you get to a new lake you're new to a lake you walk up there, okay. maybe you have, I guess the first thing is your boat. You got float tubes, boats, all that stuff. Maybe you can talk about what boat you recommend. And then, and then after that, how do you, where do you start? Well, 
let's take a lake, whoever's listening and wants to look at their local lakes, wherever that might be. The first thing they have to look at when you get to a lake is you, you need to know two things and you can't screw it up. You've got to know those two things. One, where are you going to put the fly? That's critical. Once you know where you want to fish, assuming the fish are there, the other one, and you have to know it or learn it as soon as possible, which is what depth are the fish at? The answer to both of those questions are relative to the conditions that exist when you get there. And when I'm talking conditions, I'm talking about is it a cloudy day or a clear day? Is the wind blowing or is it flat? Is the water clear? Is it off color? Is it on the warm side? Is it on the cold side? These are the things that move your fish around from one location to the other and up and down, and it changes throughout the day. Where you catch fish in April at 6 o'clock in the morning probably isn't where you're going to catch them at 10 o'clock in the morning because they're going to move. And Mother Nature controls that through water temperature. If you have a cloudy day, the water is going to be slower to warm, which is going to affect the oxygen and pH in the water, so the fish adjust to those sort of things. So when you get to a lake, the first thing that guys need to understand, and this is true, Dave, of all the lakes. I've done probably close to 600, 700 lakes in my lifetime around the world and here in the United States. They're all different. They're at different altitudes. They have different chemistries to them. The uh, habitat are different different configurations and all that. But one thing that I found is true on every single one of them, and this will help the guys, if they want to be successful in still water, you must fish where trout feed and not where they hold. Everyone says they go out with a depth finder and they read fish on the bottom. Well, you'll always find fish on the bottom because that's where a trout lives. Mm-hmm. Where and how deep they go is relative to oxygen and water temperature. And if that water temperature is not to their liking, then they'll just, they'll move to where it will be. But those changes take place very slowly because the sun, as it comes up, water doesn't change real quick in terms of temperature. It's slow to change. So the fish will adjust to it. So knowing where the fish will feed, they feed shoreline edges early and late in the day. And the big fish don't come into shallow water because they're not smart creatures, but they're instinctively smart. But they know when they enter shallow water, they're subject to predation. So they and come in is, when it's safe. What is shallow water? What do you think is the, the limits to shallow versus From deep? shoreline edge, an inch or two out to three, four feet. Okay. But I, when I'm fishing lake, I rarely catch fish deeper than six feet. I don't go there. I don't need to go there. But when I fish a shoreline edge... I know one thing, those big fish that come in to feed on shorelines, and we're not talking little guys. We're talking some of the biggest fish in the lake will come in. You could have a lake, say, that had 500 fish over 4 pounds. Maybe on the given day that you're there, maybe only 50 or 100 are feeding on that shoreline. But that's where they're going to go, and they use the safety of of cover. And cover is in the form of darkness or wind ripples. So when they go in there at first light, they're looking for food. They're not looking for a particular fly or a particular food source, just food. So if you're out casting in onto the shoreline edge, the key to catching fish is because the trout on the shoreline are moving parallel hunting. Hmm. You've got to remember, on still water, a fish that feeds is always moving. If he's not moving, then he's hunkered down either in his lyre or wherever the water and depth is t- uh, comfortable for him. But... When they move, they only move to feed or to avoid danger. That's the only time a fish moves in a given day, and that's every day after day after day. So when you go on the shoreline, those big fish, 
they're hunting for food and there's no little ones in there. They don't run with the big boys. So they're in there hunting. And if you're back out casting in, the advantage to the angler is because the fish is moving parallel, you cast in, he will see the profile view of your fly. So you pull it out to you, they will see the head, tail, body, color, movement, everything. What the angler has to do is not to retrieve it more than about four to five feet because a fish will not go on a given angle wherever he's going parallel and turn and follow the fly out to you. So every five feet pick up and recast. And the biggest mistake that I see guys make when they do this is they stay in one spot too long. Yeah. You've got to turn your boat sideways and move slowly along the shoreline covering water as you do that. And the other place where trout feed is in the top two, three feet. That's where the food is concentrated, shoreline edges in the top two, three feet, because all of the insects on the bottom, when they travel up through the water column, when they hit that film area just below the surface, they stop, and they wait trying to break through that film to become an adult on top. So we need to talk about the different stages and how they take that, and we can do that a little later. But those are the two places that the trout feed. If a guy goes out and turns on a depth finder and sees fish down there 8, 10 feet, can you go down and get them? Yes. But it's going to be a challenge because I've learned when a fish is deeper than six, seven feet, anybody out there can go out and stick their head underneath the water or get on a, a mask and go underneath and watch what the fish do. If they're deeper than six or seven feet, they're probably on the bottom and they don't move. They're That's not right. hunting. They're stationary. So you're mm-hmm. trying to convince a fish that's telling you he's not eating to take your fly. They won't move down there. You got to run that thing almost in front of their nose mm-hmm. before they'll take it. But if you can get them to take, Dave, that's where the big fish are caught. Little guys aren't down there with those big guys. They're over where the cover is. They don't run yeah. together. So gotcha. that's why you just got, you got to fish where they feed. I see. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a awesome tip. So basically, yeah, if you had to narrow it down, maybe the two to three foot depth is a good place to be. And um, catching it early or late as fish are coming in to feed. And is it is there too early? I mean, if you get out there right at daylight, is the water, I guess, depends on temperature and things like that. But do you find that there's a, well, maybe one good time in the day that's better than another? Good question. And what I would say is factor in for everybody, and you got to do this every day that you're on the water, you got to factor in time of day and time of year. So if you're on the water at first light and it's April, conditions are going to be totally different by June. You're not, you're going to find the water temperatures along the shoreline are going to be warmer. You might have more weeds growing in there. You just got to factor that in. So a trout, the reason they go in early in the morning is because the water's at its coldest point. It's had all night to cool. So it, right around that 8, 30, 9 o'clock, if it was the 1st of June, you'll notice if you've been along the shoreline and you're hooking some nice fish and all of a sudden, here's what's going to happen. You're going to find that that bite that you've been getting is starting to taper off. And guys, when it happens, what they think, oh, they're not taking this fly anymore, so they make a fly change. That's not the problem. It's not the fly. Every fly we have on our fly box, Dave, imitates food of some kind, either insects or fish. So when when you put that fly in there, trout hunt for food. They don't hunt for a particular food source. The only thing that brings big fish into shoreline, and they know it, are baby fish, minnows. Hmm. But that isn't what they necessarily, they won't say no to a minnow if you threw them a bugger. Or if you throw them a bugger in place of a minnow, they'll still take all that stuff. They'll take anything that's presented without flaw that doesn't spook them. Hmm. So as you get out there and you you proceed along those shoreline edges, right around that 9 o'clock time frame, as the bite starts to slow, the fish are going to move off into deeper water waiting for the hatches to begin. 
And that's the key. When you see the hatches, you're going to see fish making rings on the surface. The fisherman knows they're eating either a mayfly, caddis, damsel, or midge. Those are the four insects that go from the bottom to the top. And when they reach the top, only the damsel heads to shore. The other three hang in the film. So what the angler needs to do, the fish that's making that ring is traveling anywhere from 10 to maybe 12, 13 inches below the surface. Just watch, and they'll see. That's where they travel, always looking up. So if you're in 10 feet of water and you see rings, that fish, and what you have to do is you only have a foot of water to play in. You cannot let your fly go below the depth that those fish are cruising because trout never feed below the level that they're cruising. They don't do it. They're looking up. So you can get them as long as the fly is at his level or above. So then the line that you're using becomes critical for that type of presentation. But we can get into that a little later, too. But yeah. that's that's a, a critical part yeah. of the thing that we do on Stillwater. Okay, yeah, let's talk about the lines a little bit. I know, um, you know, the clear camo is a line I've used in the past. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, what do you recommend? And I guess in some of these situations where you're only a foot below, maybe you're just using a dry line. Maybe you can talk about that if you are in that situation where fish are, are hitting those those sure. bugs that are hatching. What what line and then what? maybe talk about your if leader a, and, and flies as well. If a guy, Dave, didn't know and he went out and he saw fish working, and I would say probably in all the years that I've guided and I get clients out there, I have to – set this up before we're on the water so we don't have any surprises, but most of them would take a floating line. Here's what's wrong with a floating line under this condition. Floaters leave a shadow and reflect light. When they lay on the surface, if you move them and retrieve them to you, you're causing surface disturbance. A floating line in a wind, trout face into a wind. So if you cast across the wind, the line's going to bow in a wind, which is going to cause drag on your fly. So floaters are not a good idea unless you can use a floater with, say, uh, a dry fly and, and a, another fly just below it. Use the dry fly as your indicator. That right. will work, or but what you can't about, move it. you got to just a really leave long, What about like a 20 or 30-foot leader or something like that? You won't see anybody throwing 30-foot leaders, not even 20. <laughs> in all the years that I've guided, I haven't yeah. found a guy yet no. that wants to use that because they know they can't turn them over. Yeah. You can turn over a 20-foot leader to do it. They just have to pause on their back cast to get that back cast tight. Then you can turn it over. But the line that you want to use for that, at least the line that I use, I had the Cortland Line Company make a 7-foot intermediate sink tip. So it's a 90-foot long line. 83 of the 90 feet is floating. Hmm. The last seven feet goes from a colored, dark green color to clear, and they call it a ghost tip. This is what we termed it uh, and designed it that way. And I had them make it for me just so I could fish the pupa form of the insect. So this is where the pupa is. And before I go into how to use it, Dave, I think it's important that the listeners understand of the aquatic insects, mayfly, caddis, damsel, and midge that we imitate, we imitate those th- four insects in three stages. Larva, which are found on the bottom, pupa, which are found just below the surface, and then you got the adults on top. You have a fourth stage. It's not really a stage, but it's kind of in, in between, and that's as the fly leaves the bottom from the larva where they feed and live most of their life. As they travel up through the water, they're in an emerging state. So a fly coming up from the bottom, you fish that, even though it's in pupa form, you fish that pupa and that form of presentation differently than you do when the fly is hanging in the film. So here's how you go about it. I had the seven-foot 
designed the seven foot sink tip. It's a camo tip on a floater designed for me just to keep it in that top two feet. I can cast that line out and I can retrieve it and stay in the top two feet throughout my entire retrieve. If you use the full sinking intermediate line, which will also work, but only works for about the first five feet of the retrieve because the full sinking line is, is just that. The camel's a full sinking line and it's designed to face the top six feet, but it sinks one foot in 10 seconds. So as the guy retrieves the line across, after about five feet, you've dropped below that foot level with the trout are cruising and you don't get hit. You get it at the beginning or you get at the back end as you're coming up. And everybody that's fished a lake has caught fish just as they're ready to pick up the line and make another cast. What you're doing is you're imitating an emerging insect. And Hal Jansen told me, good friend of mine, 15 years ago, he said, Denny, just remember this. He says, when you're retrieving the back end of your cast, as you're ready to pick up and make that next cast, trout never, and he emphasized the word never, never take on the pull. They always take on the pause between the poles. Took me a while before I understood what he meant, but I tried his system on the way up and putting longer pauses between my poles, and boy, it works. But half the time, you don't know when the fish takes because when you pause, your fly's dropping back, and that creates slack, and the fish just sits there and sucks that bug in. You don't know it till you go to pull again on your retrieve, and then you feel the line is tighter, you feel a head shake, and you set the hook. So that's the way you fish that. But what he was really trying to tell me is trout, when you pause, your fly drops back down. So when you're casting the fish that are feeding near the surface, here's how you tell the difference, Dave. A trout that's taking the adult insect off the top, when you see a ring on the surface, if you only see the ring or maybe the trout's nose, that fish is feeding on adults, sucking them under. If you're in doubt, just look at the ring and you'll see there's a bubble in the middle of it. They get air when they get those adults off the top. But if the fish porpoises, shows his back and tail, those fish are moving very slow. And that guy is feeding on pupa just below. He takes the pupa on his way up, shows his back and tail and goes back down very slow. And he probably gets another gulp as he goes down. Those fish can be caught, and here's how you do it. It took me a long time, almost 30 years of failure, trying to catch that fish that was porpoising before I finally figured out what it was. And I did it on a lake up in Wyoming. I was watching these insects that were laying just below the surface in in pupa form, and I could see some fish cruising over to them. And one of the three fish, two of them veered off, and the other one stopped. And he, I know he's looking at those insects. He's only four feet away, and I'm about six feet away from the from that fish. And he stopped looking at those insects. And about that time, there were two more insects that came up. And when they hit the surface, they didn't break through the surface film as these other three hadn't. But when they hit the film, they dropped back down. The minute they started to fall, that fish moved right in, ate that bug and the other three hanging up in the film. And then I realized what I was doing wrong. What I'd been doing wrong is I was trying to imitate the pupa by stripping, retrieving through that zone. Uh Uh-uh. The fish or the insect that I'm imitating is not moving, and I was moving the fly, and they know the difference. So what I did to adjust to that, to make it work, I make a cast and count five seconds. I Half the time, I don't even get the five. The fish sees the bug, picks it up, and your line just all of a sudden comes tighter. He takes off with it. 
if you don't get a strike within five seconds, then I pull toward me four to six inches, and usually the fish has the fly already, just mm. took it while it was sinking. Mm -hmm. And then when I tighten the line up to him, he feels that tension in any bolt. So one of the two will work. And if you don't get a strike on a five count or a pull, then the fish that you cast who's gone. Didn't see it, didn't like it, or you spooked him with a cast. That's okay. You have two options. Pick up and recast to another spot, or you start retrieving coming back to you. If you catch a fish on the retrieve, as you after you've made your cast, fish always comes in from the side. So he sees the fly in profile view. That's critical. And how the angler will know that that's true. When he lands the fish, just look and see where the hook is. Yep. It'll always be in the side of the mouth, either one side or the other. That's right. So that's critical to the catch rate. But guys can do either one. But that's how you fish pupa. And it's consistent on any lake that I've fished. And when I have clients, that's what we do. Wow. Yeah, those are you just packed a bunch of great stuff in there. Um, going back, um, well, I guess starting on the, the count there, the five count and pull, Mm -hmm. So are there other, I mean, you're talking about fishing pupa, uh, are there other, I know there's a lot of different strip techniques and stuff like that. Is that something you want to talk a little bit about and how, how you might vary? Because I've done that before too, the, like you're talking the slow, sure. the slower um, stripping, but when would you change that up and do something maybe faster or longer or just different? If, if, if I start my day, Dave, I always start it with a bugger or leech or a minimum imitation and I start it along the shoreline. And what if fly, I don't get and what fly is your the, do you start with? What's your go-to fly? Probably a streamer, and I've got in my those that I sell to the public. There's twelve different varieties of streamers that I sell. These are just patterns that I've designed over the years and imitate bait fish. And as I travel around the world, always looking at the little fish in different lakes, and I found about eighty percent of all the minnows that I find in lakes around the country or in other other countries. They're mostly pearl or white on the belly, and they have either an olive or grayish, dark gray back. Yeah. So what's more important when you're talking about streamers is matching size more than color. Size is number one. So when I do that, I'll fish that, I'll fish a leech or my seal bugger. When I see fish beginning to make rings on the surface, and it won't be early as a rule, it's usually after 8 o'clock in the morning, in the summer months. That means they're coming up for aquatic insects. When they do that, I switch lines from the intermediate to the seven-foot tip, although I could use either one for shoreline fishing, and then I'll go to the seven-foot tip, and I'll probably stay with that line for most of the rest of the day because the hatch and the bugs that you mm. see up there, the fish coming up to them could probably last the rest of the day. To do that, it's a no-brainer. I'm fishing top two, three feet. What a lot of guys don't understand about Stillwater, Dave, is that most of the fish that we catch, and I can go back into my logs, holy cow, I do somewhere between five to 600 trout a year over four pounds, but I'm on lakes, especially upper Klamath, where there's just a lot of big fish. Most of those fish are caught in the morning hours, and most of them are caught in depths less than six feet. I don't fish deep. I don't need to go down there and chase those guys to do that because they're looking for food along the shoreline. And if you're in a pupa hatch, you've got to stay close to the weed beds. That's where you'll find most of the insects. Just get back, watch for a porpoising fish, make your cast. you got a leading. When the fly hits, 
do as I told you, just give it a five count. If they don't take them five seconds, then give it a slight pull. If you still don't have him, you can continue to pull or you can pick up and recast another fish. But it's very, very consistent. And then I'll switch off of that line and the little flies. And when we're talking flies, I always ask guys, and here's a good question for guys to stop and analyze. Most of the people that fish lakes have got hare's ear, pheasant tail nymphs, um, oh, prince nymphs, stuff mm-hmm. like that. All of those flies are really pupa imitations. Most of the flies we have on our fly box are pupa imitations, but we don't call them that. They have different names, but they're really a pupa imitation if they're small stuff. Other than a scut or something like that. Yeah. It's a pupa or a larva imitation because when I talked, the last book that I did, I talked to six or seven biologists around the country. And these guys, I said, when you guys are out in the field doing your research, I said, do you record the information that you get when you're checking the stomach contents of fish? And he says, yeah, what do you want to (laughs) know? And I said, I want to know if you eliminate leeches, scuds, minnows, all that stuff, just aquatic insects. Of the three stages, pupa, larva, and adult, what percent was the larva? Almost every one of them said about 10%. And I said, what percent was the adult? They said about 10%. And I said (laughs) to him, are you telling me that 80% of what trout eat in still water is in larva form? And he says, that's right. So all I had to do is figure out where the trout feed on the larva. They don't feed, or pupa, they don't feed deep, that's the larva, and they don't take them very often. They feed on the pupa when they get up and hang in a film because they're vulnerable, they're just sitting there. So that became pretty easy, learn the depth. Uh, I've got all kinds of flies that I sell to the public that are pupa imitations, even though I call them something different. Mm. Uh, AP emerger, calabatus nymph, midge larva, midge pupa, still water nymph, they're all really pupa imitations. Yeah, and if you know, if you go back to when Lee Wolf, one of the last articles that he did before he passed away, is he did an article on some streams and rivers on the East Coast, and he showed you a picture of a mayfly, a caddis, a damsel, and a midge, and he showed you the pupa form of those four insects upside down. He took a picture, showed you what the insect looked like from the bottom. They all look the same. You couldn't tell which was which. So when a trout hunts, he's not focused on which insect is hatching. He's focused on which stage of the insect is hatching. They don't care if it's a mayfly, caddis, damsel, or midge either. It's pupa, which means top two or three feet. That's where he's going to hunt. If the fly doesn't enter the water and spooks a fish, you're going to catch him. Gotcha. It's that simple. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, a, that's some more good stuff there. I was thinking back to, you mentioned the lines again. So we're talking the, um, in the, these links, you mentioned the seven foot, your line. I'll, I'll provide a link at uh, mm-hmm. wetflyswing.com slash six four in the show notes. I'll have links to the stuff we're talking about here. But so you have the seven foot line and then you have the clear intermediate or just the intermediate mm-hmm. line. So that's pretty much it. If you have to get two lines, if you had to get three, would you add one there? Well, you want the floater for your adults in indicator fishing. Your intermediate line, the full sinking intermediate, is really designed to fish the top six feet. Because when you first enter a lake, if it's early in the morning, you're, for the most part, you're not going to see any insects hatching. So you're going to stay in that. You want to stay in the top two, three, four feet and down to as much as six feet to run your flies through those zones. Guys got to remember, when a trout is deeper than about six feet, 
They're not moving, Dave. Mm -hmm. That's critical to our presentation. When they're in the top two, three feet, yes, they are moving. And on most lakes in the summer months, here's an example of what I'm talking about that'll affect the guy's presentation. Right around nine, 10 o'clock, the sun is up, it's a clear day, your water temperature has already changed from a degree or two, it's warmed up. As the water warms, the fish are gonna tell you this, you don't have to wonder it, you will find that even though you were casting and retrieving and doing very well in the first few hours, casting and pulling your fly parallel across in the top two, three feet, you're gonna see that strike ratio begin to taper off. You're not getting as many as many fish, and the reason for it is the trout are dropping down a few feet where the oxygen level hmm. is back to their norm where they like, and that top surface area, pH changes, which means less dissolved oxygen up there, so they just drop down into the four, five, six-foot huh. range. Now, if you continue to pull, whether it's a foot under two feet down to four or five feet, and you pull parallel, they don't want a parallel pull. They're waiting for the fly to come up on an angle as an emerging insect. And the fish that you're fishing for is not moving. He's stationary. So as you cast and retrieve and you start coming up, we, we're talking 20 feet in front of you, 30 feet in front of you, and four to five, six feet down. That's where your fish is. That's the fish that you're fishing for, whether you want to or not. And as you get hit, got to remember, it's that pause between the poles. When the fly drops back down, that's when they take. But you'll notice that a parallel pull-up higher doesn't work very good. Until the hatch it starts to recede, then I go back to the big flies toward the end of the day, and I fish the big flies either closer to the shore. But another thing to remember about that too, Dave, when, when trout are on a shoreline and they leave that area, they don't go to the middle of the lake and, and honker down on the bottom. They go where it's about 8 to 10 feet. Why would a fish travel all the way to the center of the lake right. and have to burn all those calories and energy to come back? They don't do that. They hang where they're always close to where their food sources are. They aren't going to make that extra effort to go out there. So if you're casting into a shoreline, you're probably 40 to 50 feet out. Just stick your rod down if you don't have a depth finder and find out what the depth is. If you got a nine-foot rod and you hit bottom before you get the nine feet, you know you're less than nine right there. Yeah. So if you cast in the shore, you've got that advantage, or you can cast out the deeper water, fish the top two, three feet. That's where I get my clients to fish, and that's where we catch all our trout. Huh. No, that's cool. Day in, day out. Yeah, yeah, that makes. I mean, you've definitely streamlined it for somebody, you know, who's maybe new to it, understanding that you know. And I and I think I've fallen in that trap too, where you get out in the lake and you you're trolling around the lake and you're covering everything, but it's you're probably more than half the time you're not even going over fish so the fact well you mentioned yeah. trolling yeah and let's talk for just a second for the guys that like to troll trolling there's nothing wrong with it. it's not fly fishing it's moving with a fly you're fishing a fly even though you got a fly rod you're not fly fishing you're yeah. trolling but it's very very effective and what you're trying to find out when you troll you will find there's certain places on a lake where you get a lot more strikes than you get in other places the troller has to remember when you troll, it's all about depth, and it, it's relative to the speed you go and how much line you put out, regardless of what the sink rate is of the line. You retard the sink rate when you move the boat a little faster in the water, so you can control that. If the angler will keep his fly 40 to 60 feet behind the boat, 
going on a slow troll, and that's a relative term, but relatively slow. If it's not working, you can pick up the speed. What you're trying to do is keep the fly in the top two, three feet. You don't want it going deeper. There's no advantage to that. So if you keep it in the top few feet as you're trolling along, you're going to hook fish. And when you hook them, most of those fish, I would say 95 to 98% of those fish always come in from the side. You're trolling on a straight line. Look at the way we, we present our flies to fish. God, we do more things wrong. We put all the stuff that we tie when we tie a fly on a hook. There's no hook on anything that they eat. Then we use all this metallic stuff and tinsel stuff and shiny stuff. <laughs> Nothing that they eat has any of that stuff on it. The fly enters the water from above. The insects they're eating are going up. Your fly's going down. When you when you retrieve it, you move it in a straight line. There's no way we can make our flies look or act like what that trout sees and eats every day. But in spite of all those mistakes, we still catch fish. Right. So guys got to remember, what is the trigger mechanism that allows a fly or a fish to take your fly? Movement. Movement is the key, and it's controlled by how the fly is tied and how you fish it, the retrieve that you use. That means depth. You have to match all those things up. And I just find as long as I'm in six feet or less, I can go into a bay that's flat on the bottom. Fish or crews a foot or two off the bottom. But you can go out in the middle of a bay and catch fish just as well as you can casting in along the shoreline. But if it's early and late, those fish will move into that shoreline because everything that we have in our fly box, no matter what you call it, mayfly, caddis, damsel, midge, leech, scud, minnow, whatever it is, all of those food sources are found in along the shoreline edge. Hmm. And that's because of the protoplankton and zooplankton in the lake. That's where it grows. So that's where you want to focus your time and attention when it's the right time. But anyway, trolling is an effective way of doing it. And you will find certain areas where you're catching fish and certain areas where you don't. We'll avoid those. Yeah. And if you find an area that's good, then make some landmarks so you know where that area is, especially if you're away from the shore. So you can go back through it. Huh. If you do it and you're catching fish, great. If you stop catching fish, rest it, leave it, go go to another spot, but cover water. And that's the, as I mentioned earlier, that's one of the most common mistakes that guys make that are especially inexperienced. They stay in one spot too long. Not a good idea. Yeah, you want to cover the water. Okay, and you mentioned um, fly design, and, and I want to dig into that one for sure because you're uh, an expert okay. and you've designed some. I mean, the Stillwater Nymph is one that I've had in my box. A friend gave it to me a long time ago, and you know I've caught plenty of fish on that. But before we jump into there, you you also mentioned a couple of um, names. I was wondering if you can mention, speak to maybe a few of the, if there were any mentors you've had along the way that, that have helped you kind of get to where you are. You know, I would love to give credit to a lot of people that I've talked to and met over the years, but in all honesty, none of them knew anything about <laughs> Stillwater. The really? only one that I found, there was a mentor that uh, he's an Indian, a Klamath Indian, and his name is Rich Henry. Uh -huh. And when I bought a resort on Upper Klamath, which is how I learned Stillwater by going out every day, Rich would come in and fish the channel's feeding net. And up until that time, Dave, for 20 years, I never saw a single fisherman, not one, fishing that lake with a fly. Wow. No one did it. They trolled lures or they bait fished. So Rich Henry was out there. 
and he is catching fish after fish after <laughs> fish after fish. And I, I just had to find out what he was doing. So I had tried it a few times and was zero success. I couldn't get a strike even. So I went over and I asked him if I could take some pictures of one of the big fish he just caught. I don't think he really wanted me there, <laughs> but he allowed me to come over. What I really wanted to see is the fly he was using. So I got a picture of the fly and the fish's mouth and all that. And then I asked him, I said, what is that fly using? And he told me it was a black leech. And uh, I kind of put myself in a funny position. I said, you know, could I buy a couple of those from me? Well, I, I was already tying flies. I didn't know how to do that. But mine were too big. But he gave me a couple. And I watched his retrieve. And he used a retrieve that I'd never seen before. It was a very short, rapid pull to match the beetle larvae that were in the water oh, yeah. that these fish had been feeding on. So when he left, I got in my boat, and I did not have the line that he had. Because I, I asked him, I said, what's the fly line you're using? He says, it's called an intermediate, but you won't find it in any fly shops. They have to order it. Well, in those days, going back 40 years ago, an intermediate line was only made for saltwater, for bonefish oh, in, yeah. the, in the flats. Huh. There was no freshwater version, but they just started, Scientific English was the first one to come out with it. They just started making them then. So he told me, you need to get one of those lines. Well, I didn't have one, and I didn't have time. So I went up the creek channel, and I had a sink tip line that was a 10-footer. And I got up there, and I found out I could get by with a 10-footer sink tip because when I made the cast, one of the things that I found out in with his form of presentation, strikes always come in the first few feet of the retreat. So you're not giving that line chance to sink. But if you come back further, it's going to sink faster, and it takes you out of the zone way, way too quick. So, But in those days, I, I broke off the very first fish. God, I was so happy because it worked. <laughs> I caught three more before I lost the second fly, but I went back and tied it much more. And he was my mentor, and I fished with him many days after that. And the stories that I could tell you about that guy, he has no weakness. I hmm. never found a weakness. He could cast. He knew bugs. He tied. He, he knew retrieves. There was nothing about his presentation, and he understood trout and feeding behavior. Wow. He's still to this day the best angler I've ever seen. On no the kidding. That is, yeah. a, that is a great story and somebody that probably a lot of people have never heard of, right? Uh, well, those who fish with him know him. Yeah. Uh, he's, I see him every year. He'll be in Albany, Oregon at the oh, cool. FFF show there every year, and he always stops by my booth, and we have a few laughs and talks, and uh, I owe a lot of what I've been able to accomplish. I had to learn it on my own, but he was the one that steered me in the right direction. I never took a casting lesson or a tying lesson or that. I just trial and aired it, but that's not really the way to go. For guys who want to do this, they need to have someone help them, teach them how to cast to throw a longer line. you got to be able to throw at least 40 to 60 feet, and so if you can do that, whether you tie or not, you need to know what kind of flies to, 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 to buy, and when you mention flies, one of the things that you have to remember, Rich, when you or Dave, when you take a fly, if you're in a fly shop or you're tying your own the whole key to the fly's effectiveness has to do with proportions. How long is the tail? How much tail you put in there? How thick is the body? What kind of materials you use? What we've gone to today in the fly tying industry, God, God, it's, a, it's a wonder to me we don't scare the fish with all the stuff that we put on these things. But 
most flies, especially if you match it to the natural, we overtie. Everybody puts too much body in, too much tail in. They just put too much crap on them, and you don't want to do that. You want to keep them as sparse as you can. Don't put more than you absolutely need. Like when I do my midge larvae, it's nothing more than black thread from the bend of the hook wrap back toward the, the thorax area. And then I put some copper wire over that, eight turns of copper wire. That forms the body. Put a dubbing loop and put in some seal sub right there for a thorax, and that's it. Nothing to that fly. You can tie a lot of them in a very short period of time. But if all the flies that I fish, and the seal bugger is easily the most popular fly, and I sell a ton of them because when guys buy a bugger, stop and think about it, Dave. What does a bugger imitate? What do you think those guys out there think that fly imitates? And you'll hear all kinds of things. Oh, it looks like a leech or it could yeah. be a dragonfly nymph or a minnow. It doesn't look like a minnow. It doesn't have fins. It doesn't even no. have the same color. It's got totally different kind of movement. The reason it works, it's a suggestive fly as is a leech and minnow. They don't imitate one food source, but they could imitate a whole bunch of different things. And the reason trout take it is the movement. They key off a movement. It triggers a reaction in them. So that's why those flies work. But when you use the small stuff, stuff that looks like pupa, there's very little movement in most of those. So it's up to the angler to apply the movement if you're retrieving. Hmm. But you got to remember fish and i'm telling you 90 percent or more of all the strikes you get on a given day fish will come in from the side because when the fish takes your fly it's a reactionary strike it's not because it looks or acts like food to them they're curious and if anybody's ever caught a fish that was stuffed full with snails or whatever it is you wonder how could he get one more food source in his mouth tell me that fish was hungry no he took it because he reacted to the movement that the angler put in there so that's a key part. But in fly tying, I think it's important that if a guy gets a fly that really works well for him, then this is going to be tough for him to do. Put that thing away. If you don't tie, then find someone who can tie and match it exactly, in, especially in proportions. How long is the tail? How much uh, they have in it? You know, And keep the bodies really, really on the thin side. That's probably the biggest That's thing the that biggest I see fly. guys do. They yeah, they, they, bodies are too thick and tails are too short. If you have to air like on, on a bugger style fly, air on the side of too long rather than too short. That's right. Yeah, no, that, you just answered my question I had for you on the, the most important thing. And I just think of, again, of your stillwater nymph, it, it definitely, you know, you look at that thing and I'm not sure how many strands of marabou it's got in it, but it's, it's pretty thin. It's got just a, you know, a few strands on top and a pretty thin body. And when that gets in the water, it's a, it's a thin little fly. Well, you can, you can air on that fly too. On that one, it, when you use marabou for a tail, there is a point where it can have not enough and a point where it has too much. But you got to settle enough so that when it's wet, it definitely forms a silhouette. It's the silhouette of the fly is the reason trout take it. When I designed the Stillwater Nymph, I was fishing Diamond Lake, and I, I've known for all these years that a Diamond Lake, the bite slows between 1 and 3 in the fall. I don't know why it just does. So around 1 o'clock, I went into my truck, and I'm sitting there having a sandwich. I looked up at a fly that I had bought when I was up at Henry's Lake in Idaho, and it had a tied-down back. Well, in the fall, I know that fall caddis are out. So I got back in the back. I had my fly tying stuff with me, and I designed the fly, and I used deer hair for a tail and used the excess. Instead of cutting it off, I pulled it over the top when I did the body, and that was the wing case. 
Well, I got it on the water. Boy, I'm telling you, Dave, I was hooking big fish, bigger than I'd ever caught before in the first few casts, but I could only catch two or three fish on that fly, and then they broke the deer hair, and I had nothing but a mess. So I I found, well, it's not very durable. So I tried paintbrush bristle. They aren't going to break that, but it was so heavy that it made the fly flip upside down. Well, they still took it. So that's when I settled on a marabou tail with a marabou back, Mm -hmm. and I didn't find that the body was that critical. But one thing I can tell anglers out there that are listening, if it comes to hackle on that fly, you'll notice I have nine variations of a Stillwater Nymph that I sell. Every one of them has got a burnt orange hackle. Hmm. And that burnt orange color is an attractor color. It outfishes any other color that I use for hackles. So that's why I only use burnt orange on it. And never more than three turns. Okay. Like on a seal bugger, never more than four. Good. Good. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll provide some links to some videos or photos and, uh, like I said, uh, wetflyswing.com slash 64. And you mentioned that the Stillwater, it kind of sounds like what you originally tied was kind of like a tied-down caddis. Is that kind of what it, it looked like a little it bit? It was. That was the idea I had in mind when I did it was a tied-down caddis. Yeah. That's why I used a deer here. But yeah. I found that Marabou, that silhouette, you know, I've used that fly because it's really a good damsel imitation. But I've used that fly in the fall when there's no damsel in, on the water. It's December, and the water temperature is 38 degrees. There's no damsels around. But I'll put on a still water nip and just slam them, yeah. which tells you and reinforces the fact it's food to the fish. They don't care what it, what it imitates. We will never know. But the trout, as far as they know, it could be food. That's why they take it. And you will find when they're not sure what it is that you're supposed to be imitating, the strikes are aggressive. Yeah, and very violent. And I was, uh, I've used the, the tied down, uh, you know, just fishing streams a lot. And you're right. The, mm-hmm. you know, if a fish eats it and all that, the, the back will break on the fly a little bit. No, but I found that the more sure. that, it, the more that it gets frizzled, the better the fly works. In fact, I've had sometimes where you get a good evening and by the end of the evening, there's nothing left of it. You know, all the deer hairs gone, <laughs> but the fish are still taking it. <laughs> I know, well, I was living at Lake Tahoe one time and living on the upper Truckee River, and I went out, and I was dry flying it that night, and I was fishing a hole right behind my house. It was a, I always see fish in there, but at the time I was fishing it earlier, I was running a fly down through there, and I was dry flying it, and I caught a couple small fish just before dark. I had gone down the river, and when I caught back to that same spot, I was using, uh, there were cattle on the water, and I could hear the fish splashing. Oh. I couldn't see them. It was getting so dark. I must have caught 12 fish on 12 casts. There were so many fish there, I had no idea how many were underneath the brush that had come out. By the time I got back to the house and looked at my fly, the hackle was broke. There was no body and no tail left on it. That's cool. And yet they were still taking it. That's cool. So that, your point is well taken. Yeah, yeah, they'll take it when it gets nice and bushy. Yeah, that's good stuff. So, yeah, let's let's bring this full circle as far as the, you mentioned the lines, but if you talk, maybe you talk a little bit about what the best rod, you know, as far as weight and length and things like that. And then and then also the leader, just bring us back so somebody can kind of get the Yeah, the leaders are a critical, a real critical part of your presentation, Dave. And I use, uh, and that's what I get my clients to do, I won't fish anything shorter than 12 foot. And I use a monofilament leader, which is not good because it reflects light and leaves shadow, but monofilament has memory, which you can straighten by stretching it. You cannot do that with fluorocarbon. But on the end of a monofilament leader that's nine feet long, I add three feet of fluorocarbon to it. So anytime you add to an existing leader, you must add an increments of three feet and come down one X. So if the leader is a nine foot one X, then I add three feet of fluorocarbon 2x to it to get out to 12. 
And for me, when I'm fishing lakes, it's one or two X on the tippet. And guys think, oh, my God, how could you use such heavy tippet? That's because they're thinking in terms of diameter and spooking fish. Got to remember that trout do not spook from fluorocarbon. It doesn't leave a shadow. It's not reflective of light. It has a density the same as water, which means it's almost invisible. And the bottom line, they don't care. (laughs) So if I can get that tippet to a size and I can get one X to a size 12 or 14 hook, then I'm going to use it because the product that I use called Sight-Free is the smallest diameter on the market. And I can use it, but the reason I use it is because of the knot strength. It's the strongest. And I learned it from the English national team that were competing in the world championships 16, 17 years ago when it first came out. So leaders, 12 foot down to one or two X, a guy that fishes the lake with three or four X, he's going to break off fish. And those are not the fish that you wanted to lose. When it comes to rods, I would use a five weight only if I was fishing indicators or dry fly. Other than that, I always use a six or a seven because you got to remember trout face into a wind. Never cast downwind when the wind blows because trout will face you. So when you present the fly, he's only seeing the tail as you come up and you're lining all kinds of fish. You always cast across the wind, which means a six or seven weight rod will do it better. I put a seven line on a seven rod or a six weight rod. A six on a five, I oversize it one because graphite rod today will throw at least two line weights. Yep. yep. Doesn't make any difference. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's the way I go. Okay. And, um, yeah, I was just thinking now maybe just for the, the entomology piece, you can kind of clarify for somebody that doesn't know. We were talking uh, pupa a little bit. So with midges, mm-hmm. uh, t- talk about the life cycle of that. Are, are midges, do they have that pu- pupation phase, uh, pupated phase, or however you s- uh, say that with a midge, or are we talking? They just, do. Uh, the yeah. pupa, well, on all four insects, I read an article on a guy, and I saw this on YouTube, a writer for Fly Fisherman Magazine, and he says that the mayfly does not have a a pupa stage. Well, I got news for that man. Hmm. It does have. You tell me how does a an insect, because he was really a river and stream guy, didn't know anything about lakes, and it was obvious in his article, but he was saying there's no pupa stage. Well, that's because anglers fishing streams and rivers don't imitate pupa with their flies. They either fish a nymph on the bottom right. or they fish the dry on top. On lakes, the pupa stage is the most critical yep. stage of all insects. So okay. uh, it goes from, you know, uh, larva to pupa to adult, and they'll hang in that film. But uh, as far as a midge goes, midges don't like bright, sunny days. You'll find them on the water almost every day throughout the season. Dark days, rainy days, they love it. But anytime the wind blows hard enough, it always curtails your hatch. It stops the hatch because the water gets too rough. Okay. And they can't hatch under those conditions. Other than that, you always find midges out there. So, um, so. yeah, yeah. One well, the question I, I had there on the midges is, and and this came from a friend who I was talking to. He he mentioned um, like the challenge of when you get into selective trout. You know, can you speak a uh-huh. little bit to that? How you with when you have selective trout, which I guess means I don't know. Maybe you can clarify what that means. And then how you catch those fish with midges. You know, it's because you got to understand when a trout gets over 15 inches, his, uh, what he hunts for, his diet changes, his body requirements change because they need more protein. It's not a matter of how much food is available to them. Every lake has got more food that a trout can eat. You may not think so, but they do. Only acidic lakes 
are limited as far as what you find in the way of food sources because they're cold, deep, dark, and they're high mountain, and they have a rock base. Midges, you will find some midges on every lake on this planet. But when you're talking midges, you're talking about an insect that is not very big, and you can they're easy to tie. And the only stage that I found, I don't fish adult midges. I have on a few occasions, but I don't need to. I always fish the pupa because that's what the trout are more interested in. And we talked about how to fish that. But to do a midge pupa or larva, it's just a matter of making a body. You can do it with tying thread and wrapping wire through it. The difference between the pupa and the larva or the larva stage in pupa form or larva form, the pupa has uh, a wing case, larva do not. So as I tie the fly, it would have a black body, copper wire or silver wire through it, and then I would form a dubbing loop and put in seal sub, very sparse, two turns at the head for a thorax. But if it's going to be a pupa, then I tie in a wing case, pull the wing case over the thorax, and that's the difference between the two flies. One has legs, one doesn't. I see. And is that the kind wing of... sticking out. You gotcha. And so, so then if we, we were talking about like a selective trout, a fat trout that maybe was selecting a certain, um, you know, whether it was that, a pupa or the larva or a different, is that where you would kind of talk about t- targeting those fish? Or I'm just trying to get to that. No, what, to that, what you have to think, I'm sorry, Dave. No, I'm just interrupt. No, go ahead. Yeah, I think I just had a question of what that what selective trout. Well, when you're any small fly that guys have, I mentioned it earlier. They're really pupa imitations. So it's not what the fly looks like to the trout. It's the depth that you fish that fly. That's why if you took a hare's ear out in the middle of the calabatus hatch and you fished it below the water, guys might think of a mayfly as a mayfly nymph, but you're really imitating the pupa stage. So pupa have to be fished in the top two feet to be successful. If you go deeper, you're getting into a situation where the trout are stationary. They're not moving, and you bring the fly up from the bottom. Yes, you can catch them that way, but once he reaches the top, got to remember when you're fishing and you see fish breaking the surface and rising out there, those fish are cruising in the top foot to 12 inches. There may be fish three, four, five feet down from where they are. Those fish are not feeding on the same thing that those up above are feeding on, and they're not even moving. So when you put a fly out there, whether it's a midge or a mayfly or a caddis or a damsel, on the pupa form, they're all going to pretty much look the same to the trout. It is the stage of the insect because it's a pupa, not the insect. Trout gotcha. are selected to the stage of the insect, not whether it's a mayfly, okay. caddis, damsel, or midge. They yeah. don't care. I hear you. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great to hear. Okay. And, um, yeah, so, well, let's see, we, we've dug into a bunch of stuff. I, I've got a few more questions here I wanted to touch on. And I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, as normal, I won't get to everything, but, um, you know, one of them, and you mentioned some of the methods before, I think I was watching a video where you talked about the, the five different methods that you can use. And I guess you talked about earlier where you talked cast and retrieve, trolling, mm-hmm. indicator. Were there other, what were the two? Well, I guess dries, and then are we missing one? Dries. More? The fifth one, if you wanted, would be jigging, but we can't jig with a fly rod. Jigging has to be straight down and brought up and let set back okay. down. Okay. Now, and yeah, maybe, and we talked about uh, Phil and uh, and Brian Chan and the stuff they're doing. Mm-hmm. They've got this concept. Maybe you just speak briefly on this. Um, you know, I, I guess uh, Phil calls it the balanced leech, and it's with a jig hook. You know, I guess it's not really jigging, but can you talk about you know that that fly design and and how I mean, can you do can you do that without get, doing the jig style? And I think in the balanced leech thing is you put a big weight on the end of the fly, and and what that's all is that just for midges? 
<laughs> no, you don't weight anything in pupa form. Oh, okay. And anybody that puts a weight, a jig means it goes to the bottom. And you jig it by lifting it up and letting it settle back down. That's the jigging motion. You can't do it with a fly rod. You have to do it with a spinning rod, okay. and you've got to do it right in front of you. Like when you cast an indicator with a fly underneath it, I see guys put bead heads on their uh, midges to get them down to the bottom quicker. But when you do that, you're only fishing an area of 15 inches in diameter, wherever the, the indicator is above it. So what if the fish aren't where you cast? What Phil doesn't tell you, uh, and I tease him about this all the time. I said, I watch you, you and your, your boring method of fishing, <laughs> at you, but watch what he does. He hand twists that thing back to him. So he's covering a path coming back to him. So he's covering more water. He's not fishing just one spot. So when you want an indicator fish, there better be fish where you're throwing that indicator. Otherwise, I've done it by just casting, using an intermediate line in my midge larva. That fly, for me, Dave, has bailed me out of more situations than I could even come close to counting huh. by simply making a cast and slow pulls and long pauses. Half the strikes or more that I get, I'm not moving the fly. I'm on the yeah. pause when they pick it up and take and run with it. Huh. So when you're talking midges and on that, leech, I'll say this about waiting flies. Every good uh, stillwater fishermen that I know of, none of them use beads on their flies. Okay. Not single yeah, So one. not even on a so, woolly bugger, no beads on woolly bugs, any of that stuff? No, they don't. If you're putting a, a weight on a bugger, then you're fishing bottom. Yeah. That means larva. That's 10%. And right. if you don't do it, you control it. It'll sink a little deeper. You control it. Guys will still catch fish. Anytime a fish sees a fly, you got a chance of him picking it up. Stop and think about this. When you make a cast on a lake, if you see a fish working out there 40 feet from you and you cast to him and you know those fish are feeding that upper zone, when that line hits, there's fish to the right and to the left where you just cast, but you don't see them because they're underneath the water. They didn't make a ring. Where are those fish going to be when you start to retreat? They're gone. Hmm. There's nothing there. You're bringing your fly back to a zone that doesn't have any fish in it. So if you don't catch the fish that you were catching out there, do you still catch fish on occasion because they come in from the side? So anytime you're retrieving on a straight line and a fish is traveling and it's going to cross the line that you're retrieving, when those two lines intersect, you get hit. Yeah. Stop and think about this, Dave. Every cast you make on a lake that you don't get a strike, because I'm disappointed when I make a cast and I don't get a hit. But it happens more than it doesn't happen because we fail far more than we succeed. But the reason for it, there's no fish there. They didn't right. see your fly. Most of the time, if they see it, you'll at least get a strike if you don't spook them with a cast. Mm -hmm. So you, just, you take that into consideration. If you put a bead on it, you're sinking that fly down. The bead on the head of a fly makes it drop in an unnatural manner. And that's why those of us that know still water don't use them. Unless you want to fish the bottom, or you're going to troll them. That's the only time you can get by with them, effectively, yeah. anyway. Okay, and and just to clarify, as far as the, and I, and I guess we could talk a little bit about boats, but say I'm in a float tube, and when you're talking about mm -hmm. doing it perpendicular to the fish, so the fish are going to be coming in from the deeper in towards the shore, so they're going that way. So you want to be basically trolling along the shoreline so you cross their path. Is that basically what you're doing most of the time? Either trolling, yes. Or, or casting. You turn your boat sideways. Yeah. You don't face the shore. You turn sideways and cast over your left or right shoulder. 
and you move very yeah. slowly. You kick very slowly, and you put your fly in every five feet. Right. Bring it out five, four to five feet from shore. If you haven't had a strike, pick up and recast. Because if the fish is there, they, the take is going to be instant. They don't oh, okay. saunter up to it and check it out. They don't look at it and wonder if it's food or not. They take right now. Yeah. They, they just don't. There's no hesitation. And you cover the water by doing that. Easily, the best boats for lakes are not boats with motors, they're not prams, they're not canoes, because those you're in trouble when the wind blows. Right. What do you do if the wind blows? They have to put an anchor down. You <laughs> put an anchor down, you just lost mobility. Yep. Sometimes you have to do it if that's all you have, but it's not the best way to go. If you can kick and control and stay along the shoreline, when the bite leaves the shore, you can still stay in shallow but cast out the deeper water. Those fish will still be there. They're not leaving. They're just going to go to a different depth. Gotcha. But they'll eventually start coming up. Wherever there's weed beds, that means shallow. Yeah. That's and where you want to hang around those spots because that's where your fish will be concentrated. So the uh, so the float tube, obviously, is good. I mean, do you have a recommendation on a uh, float tube you like to use or a type of boat where you can kick? The best boat on the market, in my opinion, is the Super Cap. And I just happen to sell them because they are the best. Yeah. They only weigh 13 pounds. You can pack them up a hill. They are the safest boat, the most comfortable boat to, to fish out of. Anybody listening to this program and wants more information, just have them give me a call. Okay, and is a Supercat, is that the name of the company or is, there, is that the model? That's the name of the boat. And New World Manufacturing in uh, Cloverdale, California, is the one that makes that boat. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, I hadn't, hadn't heard of that one. Uh, that's a good one. I'll, I'll provide a link. Well, I'll, we'll have a link to your website, too, so they can connect there and check that out. Um, okay, mm-hmm. so, so we have the boat, and obviously I've got old um, you know, float tubes I've been using for years. I've got an old Caddis float tube that's kind of a U-boat that's... You know, it's just been a great boat. You know, it's been. Sick. You got to be careful of those, though, Dave, yeah. because those can be tipped over. Well, yeah, and yeah, that's true. I've never fallen out, and I've never tipped my boat over in the twenty-some years that I've used it. It's it's just a safe, comfortable boat to fish out of. It's got a round end, so you're not blown by the wind. You're not subject to it. But usually, when I have a guy or a client that has another kind of boat, I'll here try to right. sit in it. That, that's how I sell them. I don't have to tell them. No. They, go fish out of it and see what you think. Uh, so Usually, if a guy wants to try it, I'll send it to him and try it. If you don't like it, send it back. You're not obligated to buy it until you fish out of it, so you know. That's cool. No, I'll definitely have to check check in on these a little more. And so when you have your clients out there, and, and are you still do you still guide? Yeah, I'm only guiding on private water, though. Mm-hmm. I fish mostly public water when I'm out fishing, but my guide trips are done on private water because there's bigger fish, more of them. There's smaller lakes. I can teach a group rather than just one or two people like I used to do on Upper Klamath where I took them out there. But on um, on private water, you can get four or five guys, six guys in pontoon boats and spend time with all of them. And before that day's over, I guarantee you they're going to know how to fish a lake. Nice. I won't even let them go home until they catch fish. I'll have dinner brought out if I have to. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, well, I have a, uh, a ton of questions here, but we're definitely, as usual, I won't be able to get to all of them. I did want to jump into a little bit of a rapid-fire round, if you have a little more time here. Sure, um, sure. So I've got I've, I've got a few questions that are, some of them uh, you know, go a little deeper and some of them are a little random, but um, I always start off with just kind of the two, two, and two, and we've talked a little bit about you know your top flies, but if you had to say, you know, somebody's going lake fishing, maybe it's Upper Klamath or wherever. What would be your top two flies and then talk about your top two tips for still water and then top two resources? The best two flies I fish in Upper Klamath are, are the seal buggers, uh, either black or olive with burnt orange hackle and tail. 
black ones would have burgundy or black tails and a Stillwater nymph, uh, yeah. either olive tail or burnt orange tail. Yeah. Those two are easily the best that I use. That's right. Yeah, I've got lots of olive uh, Stillwaters. That's good. And uh, and what about just general tips? Do you have like a couple of tips that might help somebody that maybe is struggling to catch a fish out there in the lake? Fish shallow, fish shoreline edges early and late, top two, three feet. Other than that, use an intermediate or a seven-foot intermediate sink tip line that I designed yeah. for lakes, and they're going to catch fish. Yeah, that's awesome. No, this is move, a, move. That move. moving is critical. Yep. Is really critical. Yep, yep. And uh, okay, no, those are those are great. And then uh, and then resources. Do you have? I mean, obviously, you have some information. I'm not sure how much you have on your website, but are, are there any other resources out there? Maybe online or other books or things that you would recommend. Maybe stuff that's not necessarily your own that could help help somebody. You know, the problem with that question, Dave, is I just, and I don't mean to make it sound like I've got all the answers. I don't, but I'm still learning, and I've been doing it for over 60 years. But the books that I've written, what, when you go to a, when you're getting started in fly fishing, you either get information from a family member or a close friend or a guy behind the counter in a sporting goods store. I have not found anybody Anybody, one or two resources would be Hal Jensen, some guys that write and been doing this as long as I've been doing it. But I haven't found anybody out there that understands Stillwater enough to be successful. And the reason so many people struggle at Stillwater is they don't spend enough time at it. If they spent more time, they'd have more answers. But they can call me. We can go over stuff and the stuff that I've done. And all I'm telling them are things that I've learned that work. And when they're talking to someone behind the counter, Look at the person that you're talking to. They don't fish enough lakes to give them good advice. That's my opinion, but I'm being honest about yeah. it. I just yeah, You no, won't it's... find guys that know it. That, that's valid. So what would be your, if you had to say, you mentioned a couple of books. Do you have a couple of two books that you would recommend that are yours that would be the best or you're maybe most, most proud the of? two that would be the best for guys to learn how. The last one that I did is called Stillwater Presentation. Everything that I know, just about everything that I know about fishing and is in there. And the one before that, it's 15 years old now, but it's still selling and I still supply it to guys. Is Fly Fishing Stillwater for Trophy Trout. Yep. And it won some awards for Bible on Stillwater, but the presentation book is all of that and then some because I've learned a lot since I wrote that first one. Gotcha. Okay, I'll link out to that. And and what is the most common question? I mean, maybe we've already talked about, but you get from either your clients or people out there. They want to know what I do to catch big fish. I fish yeah. early and late and shallow, and I fish... Uh, the small stuff uh, where fish feed, that's the whole key catching fish in lakes is using the right lines and fish where they feed top two, three feet or shoreline edges. That's it. Yeah, no, this is awesome. You've uh, been simplifying it. So this is hopefully going to be helpful for, I know it'll be helpful for me. Um, what about um, uh, a random one here? Um, as far as uh, I'm not sure if you uh, listen to music or have in the past, do you have any sorts of uh, you know music or uh, bands or groups or people you, you enjoy? I like them all. Do you? What c- country c- western popular music? Yeah, I'm not a jazz or any of that stuff, yeah. but I love music. And some of the guys I fish with are out. Uh, they're country western entertainers. And oh, really? I've met a ton of people in the industry over the years, huh. and I fish with some of them, and they're good. Roy, have who's been? Uh, I mean, anybody that we we'd recognize of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Probably not because they're up there in years now. Yeah. Uh, but they were in the entertainment business 30, 40 years ago, but yeah. long before a lot of that stuff got popular. Gotcha. Okay. 
And um, what would be a go-to uh, piece of gear you don't leave home without? It doesn't necessarily have to be fly fishing, but maybe just something on your, you know, your daily, weekly routine. Anything out there is kind of something you use, or it might be while you're traveling. Polar Polaroid glasses. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think those are critical. So you can see when you're on the water. You got to be attentive, watching and seeing fish that are working and listening for rings, rises, that sort of thing. Yeah. But Polaroid glasses are are key to protecting your eyes, but also seeing things that you you see fish where you can't see them without them. Gotcha. And did you, I mean, and that's something I hadn't really thought about, you know, I think about sometimes in streams and stuff where that's helpful, but lakes, it's just as important having been able to see down through the mm-hmm. water. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, this one kind of came to me, uh, the other day, my, my dad just had his, uh, 80th birthday party and some of his old friends, we were talking about how he, you know, was really into the sports and it was almost a, like a pro athlete back in the day. Um, do you, did you do any sports when you were younger throughout before you got into fly fishing? Yeah, I was, when I went to college, my first dream in life, uh, I wanted to hit a baseball for a living. So, and I got fairly good at it. Uh, and I was all ready to sign a pro contract with, I had half a dozen teams, but when I was playing ball, they don't have a draft, 50 rounds of a draft between 32 teams. That's a lot of players being selected in those days. Any team could sign anybody. It just depended on how much money. And all the advice I was getting from guys was, Make sure you get through your junior year in college so you only have one year left if you have to go back. Well, about the time I was ready to do that, we had the Cuban crisis come up, oh, and wow. I got a letter from Uncle Sam saying I had to go down and get my induction physical out of the way so I could be drafted after I graduated from college two months later. And so I went and joined the Coast Guard, and that kind of screwed up my opportunity to play baseball because you can't be in the service and play at the same time because by the time I got out, I'd have been 23, 24, and that's kind of old to start a baseball career. So. Uh-huh had to sacrifice it for the fishing. Industry. Wow. There you go. Wow. You're on the, on the brink of uh, professional baseball. And back in those, uh, those times who were, uh, who, who was a big, uh, like kind of a hero or mentor in baseball at the time for you? Well, I was a big Dodger fan and I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in LA. So we used to go down and we would don a Dodger uniform and go out and work out with the regulars because the scouts wanted to see how we hit and whether we could throw. So we mixed in with the regulars and, we had drills that they were looking at us, and, of course, it was a thrill to be around all those guys. So for a whole summer, being around these guys and running around in a Dodger uniform, you like to think that, you know, you belonged in it, but until you signed your contract, yeah. you didn't. And some of the guys that I was working out with, they're all known or in Dodger Hall of Fame. Willie no Davis, Jim Lefevre, guys like that. Uh, worked out with a Wes Parker, a close friend of mine that was a first baseman for him for 12 years. and. Huh. Only myself and one other guy decided we'd go back and finish our last year or finish up our college career till we were juniors anyway, but it just didn't work out for me. Not that, and it's something, you know, I'm going to go to my grave wondering, I know I can hit these guys. I can hit the fastball. I, I could hit for power and I was a really good hitter and I had an extremely strong arm. I was only so, so on speed and so, so on defense, but today, they sign you for potential and pay you for performance. That's so right. if you don't have potential, I like the big kids that are jackrabbits that can run fast. That's right. What what position were you playing then? I was playing third base and the outfield. I had oh, there you go. Yeah, positions. third base. Third base. You got to have the arm to gun to throw it across the field for sure. 
That's for sure. Or be able to make the throw from right on one hop to that plate, and it can't be any higher than head high when you throw it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear a lot of the people that are in the fly fishing business. It sounds like there's definitely more than a few that had professional sports. I guess it makes sense, hand-to-eye coordination and, and being good at that. You'd be good at fly fishing casting as well. So that would be, I guess. You would think. Yeah. Okay. Well, Denny, I think that's about all I have. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, there's a few stu- uh, other things, but, um, you know, maybe down the line we can get you back on. Um, I yeah, look forward to it. Dave. Yeah, before before I let you go, anything else? Just, I mean, you definitely simplified this and made it super easy for somebody that I think wants to get started. Did we miss anything? No, but if we did and there's questions the guys have out there, they can reach me at 541-381-2218, or they can go to the website Send me an email. My email address is D is in Denny, G is in Gale, and my last name is Rickards, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S, then the number nine at gmail.com, or they can just Google my name and it'll get them to yeah, the website, yeah, they'll, they'll and up. there's a phone number on there, but I'd love to talk to them, see if I can help them. Okay, and, and in the next six to 12 months, anything anything new or big that we can expect from you out there or anything changing? Oh, you're always learning stuff, Dave. I don't know what I'm going to learn tomorrow until I learn it, but, you you know, there's always something new coming down the horn every year. Okay, and you're going to be on the flies, new techniques. You're going to be on the, you mentioned the show circuit, right, coming up here. You're going to be out at the some Yeah, I'm in it right now. I'm leaving to go do a show in Portland this next week, and then Linwood, Washington, Pleasanton, California, and then over to... Albany, Oregon, and I'll finish up oh, yeah. right there. Oh, good, good. Well, we'll uh, I'm going to be at some of those events, too, so I'll touch base with you there and say hi in, in person. And I'll look, look forward, forward to seeing you and meeting you, Dave. Yeah, okay, good stuff. Well, I wanted to just say thanks before I let you go for, you know, providing all the knowledge and stuff. You know, as I mentioned, this is, uh, you, I think that your your uh, superpower here is being able to break this down because you took what I think is a very a big struggle for people and you, you kind of simplify it today. So I think a lot of people are going to uh, get a lot of use out of this. So just want to thank you for that. Sure. I just hope it helped, and I thank you for the opportunity. All right. We'll talk to you later, Danny. See ya. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right. Bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 64. Another quick shout out to our new patron, Brian Moffitt. Thanks, man. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to join the team and join the journey here, go to wetflyswing.com slash Patreon where a buck will help support this uh, little little journey here. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.